Claire, before we get into our breakdown of unauthorized cinnamon on the Something Pretty podcast, said super clearly for all that search SEO that's done verbally nowadays, um, do you have any allergies to anything? Um, <coughs> dust. Dust. Which is <laughs> which is uh, what is that? Ironic because my house is just a museum, a clean museum. Yeah, you're yeah. allergic <laughs> to the the mites, right? You're not allergic if you actually are allergic to dust. You're like allergic to the right the mites yeah. or something. Yeah, the shits um, that the mites are sp- are just spreading all over you uh, while you yeah, sleep. Pretty much like that. Yeah, yeah. I I can't. I think I've got uh, you know I have the usual like ragweed all that kind of bullshit. Oh yeah, like um, seasonal allergies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought that I was allergic to. I was told years ago I was allergic to cats. Yep. And then the most recent time that I did an allergy test, it said I was not allergic to cats, which mm-hmm. made me very upset because it was always a great excuse not to have to interact with cats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, well, I mean, we, um, my mother-in-law is allergic to cats, and we can't have. But I would like. I'm, I'm no great fan of cats, but I would like a. In my <laughs> perfect world, I'd have a little independent cat that shit outside and then came inside and, and chased the mice away from the house. <laughs> yes. That would be an ideal version of a cat, but I don't know if well, we're going to get there. They would, ch- it would chase the mice around and then bring their carcasses in and leave them at your, on your bed. That's fine. Put them on little tiny crucifixes to show the other mice that <laughs> no one comes in here. Mice. Fair. I wouldn't say we have a mice problem, but you certainly run into a mice every once in a while. And our neighbors say they don't have mice and they don't have a, uh, rabbits in the yard eating their flowers either and it's because they have a cat that goes outside and borrow their cat i know yeah i should just hire him uh he can become my silas silas adams he can just journey over to my house and (laughs) join my entourage so this is unauthorized cinnamon what we are about to break down do you are you're not allergic to any spices then i guess clay you don't have nothing i know of nothing you know of yeah no i don't excuse me yawning um I don't think I have any food allergies. I've never, I've never, I, I think I would have a panic attack if I had a food food allergy that I didn't know about. Yeah, because you, I would act exactly the same way Harry acts, where I <laughs> think I'm clutching actively, actively dying. Yeah, my youngest is allergic to. He was allergic to eggs and sesame. The eggs allergy has gone mm. away, and now he's only allergic to sesame. Um, oh, interesting. But that's kind of going away too. Hopefully, he grows out of it, so we can all have store bought hummus again. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was, uh, uh, this is riveting, riveting podcasting, yep. but I, I had, uh, when I was in Scotland, I had that, uh, I got some, some chips as they say, yep, chips and, um, I got whatever that, what's that brown shit that they put on it? Brand sauce. The malt. They just call malt, it brand sauce. Oh, the malt the, something. Not malt vinegar? Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, yeah. I don't know. Whatever they, they should, have it they in packets. They usually put salt, like, salt and vinegar on their chips is like the usual wood brown sauce sometimes. It was in the it was in the condiment section. There was ketchup and then there was whatever this brown shit was. Sure. And I think it's it's malt malt vinegar or something. Yeah. And I tried that and then my my whole face instantly got very hot. So I might have <laughs> I might have had an allergy up. to that. No, I like uh yeah, I like the vinegar on the chips. It's a good. It's a good thing. Fish and chips, the greatest invention that Britain ever had outside of America. Yeah, so, they really, they really uh, <laughs> stopped there with their food. They did, didn't they? Yeah, they did. It's funny how some cultures don't just don't do food. I, I mean, I guess America just kind of takes everything on. But it's like, um, like, have you ever had a good Mexican dessert? It's not possible. They don't. They don't make. Oh, desserts. interesting. Well, the churro. I don't think it's good. 
<laughs> like that's not. <laughs> I mean, I I've never sought out a churro. I know I know some people have, and some that that you if you get a good one, it's a good one. Yeah. But it's literally the only Mexican dessert I've ever heard anybody talk about. Yeah. At least anybody around here. No, some some cultures just they just can't do it. It's for what it is. They don't focus on those things. If, but if you want, you know, you want spicy food, you don't go to Britain unless they import their food. Then you go to you go to Mexico and you get a you get a nice um, hot sauce on your burrito. I appreciate Mexican food because it's the same five ingredients prepared yep. seven hundred different, different ways. Different shapes, yeah, different shapes of things, which is good. I, I think I've t- I haven't talked about it. the the burrito is my my least favorite food just because of how utilitarian it is. It's like if you just <laughs> if you just want a bunch of nutrition, you eat a burrito. It doesn't. I, I, I never enjoyed eating me. a burrito. I, I thought you would like the burrito because of how efficient it is. I, I like the efficiency, but I, I I'm not sitting down and en- I don't enjoy burritos. I'm not going like, wow, this is a this is a great sure. thing. It's just an efficient way to get. Well, nutrition. you gotta have you gotta you gotta find a place that makes it. Well, there's a place by me in, in college that would bake them. Yeah, and yeah, a little crunch, unbelievable. Yeah, and it's yeah. different different than a chimichanga, which I I also I just recently discovered in like the last year or two and i wish i hadn't because they're fucking unbelievable <laughs> and it's, it's like imagine a burrito which is bad enough for you as it is and then you deep fry it yeah it's great excellent well i, I but, like uh, empanadas yeah. because they're like that like it's oh like, yeah you, you need the, the the crunch the i think you're onto something the, the sogginess of like a non-crispy burrito is just mush in your mouth you're yes just, you're just chewing mush. Yeah. yeah wait hold on one second and yep the last listener is gone we can talk about all right, let's move Deadwood on. Now. Let's move on to unauthorized cinnamon, which you won't find any cinnamon on burritos. So your safety to Mexico, Harry. We're going to take a break. We're going to play the music, the theme song. We're going to come back and we're going to break down unauthorized cinnamon. You're listening to a podcast that is a lie agreed upon. Join Wes and Clay as they discuss HBO's Deadwood and tell you. Something pretty. This is episode seven of the third season of Deadwood. I almost said Star Trek Deadwood. Of Deadwood. This is called that Unauthorized, would be a show. Unauthorized Cinnamon. Directed by Mark Tinker. Written by Regina Corrado. In this one called Unauthorized Cinnamon, Aunt Lou's son Odell shows Hearst gold he says he brought from Liberia. A meeting of Deadwood's leaders is organized. Burns find the doc, finds the doc too ill to join. Jewel decides to put out cinnamon with the peaches. Dan Doherty objects strenuously. Alma is back on dope. Trixie tells Star. Gustav the tailor offers Swearingen brightly colored fabric for his stump. Hurst voices his suspicions of Odell's story and his character. The topic of the meeting is how to handle Hurst in the killing of Pasco. Swearingen says, quote, my instincts to act alone chart course for the fucking carnage, end quote. Merrick prepares to publish a letter from Bullock to Pasco's widow. Hearst confides in Odell that gold is every man's opportunity. Aunt Lou fears for her son's safety if he follows Hearst's instructions. Joni and Jane kiss. Swearingen gives the fabric to Cochrane to mask his tubu- tubercular cough. Never, I don't if think I've had... ever said tubercular before. <laughs> Tubeculiar. Tubeculiar. <laughs> Tub- tubercurious, yeah. Uh, if you had done put that to music, that would have been a better uh, remake of "We Didn't Start the Fire" than the one that that Fall Out Boy did. <laughs> I still haven't heard that. I don't think it's pretty rough. Yeah, I, I would imagine that's the case. You know, I, I it's not really. I, what the hell was I? What's the big? 
Oh, never mind. Maybe I can't really segue this in anything. Is there a big song that's <laughs> happened recently that has not gone? Uh, what's the biggest? <laughs> Could you be big, more specific? What's the biggest hit right now? Is there oh, a big God. hit that's You're, out? You are asking the wrong person. No, maybe that. Maybe there's nothing. I think my mind is. I just don't know going the, the Lindy Hop. Is that current enough? No, that's about where I am in popular music. The hell did ah? Never mind. Fuck it. Whatever. Forget about it. I was trying. I was trying to figure out a way that um, I was just remembering the other day that I never thought that uh, this is America from Childish Gambino was going to last, mm. and I think it's one of my one of my great calls. Although I like, I, I appreciated it for what it was, but I just never thought that that song was going to last. And no one has listened to that song in two years or whatever. It's been three years. Yeah, that's out. that's a tough one just to throw on at a party. <laughs> it's, well, it's not a good song. It, it's like it, it doesn't it's the it, video it's, is everything yeah the the whole it's a whole like art piece really yeah yeah but the song is not uh doesn't have what it takes oh i guess i because it's the um that richmond north of richmond is the big song that's out now and i was so i was wondering that has i was just trying to rank them that has slightly more staying power than uh, this is america i think but i don't think either one is particular i I amazingly heard that song in the wild the other day where yep. someone someone pulled up to a, a red light outside my house and just had the windows down and was blaring that. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that's that's an angry car ride right there. <laughs> it's I, it's a tough one to play uh, in public just because of how popular yeah. it is, right? I, I just feel uncomfortable no matter what the content is. If you're just playing the super popular song. And it's not era, like... I don't know. It's kind of a downer, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's not. A, it's not an uplifting. Not an uplifting tune. Even the most angry, like gangster rap, at least kind of you know had a beat to it that was enjoyable. <laughs> That's just that guy complaining for five minutes. Yeah, I don't. I don't dislike that song, but it's uh, it, it does the thing. I think it's too, um, the too lyrics. Earnest. The lyrics are too direct in some cases. It, yeah. it doesn't have a the the metaphor kind of slips away and it gets into like even though I like I like the line about being five hundred pounds and on welfare eating fudge packets which is funny but it's it's way too specific to be an effective right, yeah. song yeah yeah that when that line came around I was like yeah I think you're uh, you're missing the mark here a bit yeah he's, he's he ran out but of, of course uh, that's everybody who wants to make a everybody wants to make a point about that song that's their favorite line so oh is it really I guess I'm I'm not so I don't know. Yeah, because it, it's the weirdest thing. one. It's the the strangest it line. Yeah, yeah. Oh. it's the one where where he people like look. He's directly taking a shot at people on welfare. Yes, yeah, yeah. Which, well, you should. I, I why are why are food stamps allowed to buy? any am I wrong? Why can you buy weird stuff with food stamps? Shouldn't it be like limited? I, is it limited? I have no idea. Hmm. Oh. I not a clue. I know government cheese is a thing, but I thought that was just cheap. But I I, I don't know. Because people can buy soda, right? The scam is that they buy like soda and then they sell it, right? Oh, I have no idea. I think there's something like that. Anyway, Unauthorized Cinnamon. Here we are with what is considered to be one of the strongest episodes of Deadwood. Uh, all the reviews that I read praise this one quite heavily <laughs> from, I think, uh, I think it's Emily St. James now at... AV Club down to Zoller Seats who did the Deadwood Bible that I'm reading down to Seppenwall all the big reviewers TV reviewers a lot of them were mentioning that this is one of their favorite episodes so what say you about it Clay what did you think of Unauthorized Cinnamon thank God the actors are back this is a letter who's the fucking letter to 
the fuck is going on? Last of those Cornishmen murdered. Pasco. His family. Read the letter. <clears throat> it becomes my painful duty to inform you that Pasco Carwin was killed Stop earlier this week. Your head out. His body I'm was found in the road. Using the sediment and Helly Manning's using it plenty. It was not mutilated in any way. His death seems to have been instantaneous as he was stabbed through the heart. Pasco's funeral occurred today and was attended by co-workers and friends who all shared the same high opinion of him. Everything was done by kind hands that was possible under the circumstances, and a Christian burial was given him. I was not personally acquainted with Mr. Carwin, save for one encounter where he demonstrated grief and deep compassion at the passing of a friend. I knew him by reputation as an earnest worker and a diligent believer in right and wrong. His memory, I am sure, will always be with those who knew and loved him, among whose number I imagine you as first. A letter from you, which I found in his tent, causes me to convey this sad intelligence to you. Sincerely yours, Seth Bullock. What shall I do with this, Mr. Bullock? What's your fucking paper for? You fucking publish as witness. For Hearst and others to read. That's a very nice fucking letter. Oh, the troop. Not, not just yeah. all the actors in the show. Yeah, the no, troop is not, back. Not, yeah. the, not the, the SAG members. I'm talking about, <laughs> I'm talking about Brian I, Cox and his lovely band of bedridden actors. I couldn't, I couldn't tell if you were just... If you, if you thought this was the acting dynamo episode by saying the actors are back. No, but what's the, the gay guy's name is um, Betancourt or something? He has some, some name like that. And then um, Custerfield, I think, is the sick guy who's dying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the troop is back, though. I, w- uh, I was, when that scene happened, I was like, this really feels like they're checking a box storyline-wise here because I could not be more interested in whatever's going on with these guys. Yeah. And I, I feel like the show could not be less interested in what's going on with these guys. Yeah. Well, he fits in thematically, right? Like the, you know, I, I, the the point of this, this is like Deadwood's meditation on death, mm-hmm. uh, I think. it's It's a bunch of different characters and different storylines having both like literal and metaphorical experiences with death. Um, and everything revolves around that. I, I, I really like this episode too. It's kind of, it's, it's a quieter episode than a lot of the other ones that people would kind of remember. But what I think it does is that I think dead, the Deadwood Bible, uh, kind of sums it up. I'll just read from it for a second. So one of the qualities that distinguishes Deadwood is its eagerness to focus the story on an idea. This week it's something along the lines of mortality and attempts to thwart, stave off, or bargain with it. Without getting tangled in the barbed wire, which character or object or situation equals death slash loss? They all do. None of them do, and it's not as simple as that. Death is on everyone's mind as a simple fact of consciousness as it would be on the minds of the Israelites marking door frames with the lamb's blood on the Passover night. And when we say death, we mean not a particular fate or specific purveyor of death, but an array of literal and non-literal iterations of death. There's almost fear that her addiction and depression have killed her marriage. 
Hurst's mounting fear that his dream of controlling Deadwood is sickening unto death. Aunt Lou's fear of her son's Odell's safety in a racist country, which led her to send him to Liberia. And her terror at the appearance in a camp where one black man was almost lynched and another blew his brains out because he couldn't stand the bigotry. Doc Cochran's death rattle cough, the white spots on the tongue of Langrish's terminally ill mentor Chesterton, and the possibility that Hurst might assuage his embarrassment at being arrested and jailed like an everyday hooplehead by hiring another 25 gunmen and sending them on a murder spree. Um, but I think, you know, the third season is just reasserting itself as my favorite season. And I think that one of the points from the Deadwood Bible, whoever that guy was that said, like, this is the hangout season and it's the show recognizing that it's a hangout show yeah. was dead on uh, because not a tremendous amount happens here. But I think like virtually every scene, maybe outside of the theater troupe, is interesting, good, like a funny mix of comedy, not comedy. I think that the Zola Seats review marks it well, which is that like the show isn't desperate in its attempts to write character scenes to jam everybody perfectly to fit the theme of what they're talking about. But sure. they all kind of touch on it in different ways. Um, and I think that this is just the show's biggest statement yet about about death and what death means and where the camp stands at this point in comparison to Hearst. But what say you? Did you like this one or not? Yeah, I did. I think that that uh, <clears throat> that comparison is um, really interesting for a show that has so much death in it that yeah, uh, yeah. they they've never quite really meditated on it. Um, even here, like I think it's interesting that you, that that analysis is accurate. Um, <clears throat> and and the most interesting thing about it is that it is not thematically um in your face it's not a it's not a, a straight up obvious one-to-one what what the uh uh the musings on death are yeah um they're kind of through like everything else in the show they're kind of through a couple layers of uh, obfuscation um but yeah i thought it was i thought it was really good i think man i i don't i don't know did mcraney ever win an emmy for this show because he's fucking incredible no like that, that scene so. with odell is fantastic when they're the uh, dinner scene well, that one and the scene when they're walking and he has his... Uh, oh, he uh, explains the gold is the great equalizer <clears throat> of people. Yeah, and he and he um, talks about his own... Uh, the truth is... So the truth that I know, the necessities I'm prepared to bring make me an outcast. And he, he starts crying. He gets, like, emotional about it. It's yep. really good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's just... I, the only... <laughs> this is a stupid nitpick. But he said the color so many times in that thing <laughs> to the point where, like... <laughs> It, it's starting to sound like if your friend just starts uh, creates a new word for something everybody talks about all mm -hmm. the time, and he's just really trying to make it happen. This catchphrase, like, yeah, it's like okay, all right, we get it. It's, yeah, gold Great. comes on the back of the box. Although he, they get a little, bring a little bit of confusion out if I'm remembering it right, because I think Odell confuses it with like him meaning saying as if he was saying colored yes. people at that. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think I thought that stuff was was really good. Um, the McRaney scene at the end is funny. I, I like the um I mean I don't I've I've praised the performance and the character of every episode uh, of the show so far, but it is the ending one is interesting because it's the most it's clearly a everyone in the book describes like this is what Milch would do when he would bring an actress. He would walk around the set with them and like explain the way that the way that Hearst is explaining <laughs> to Odell like what the meaning of all of this is and why why this would be the the way that it is and that her speech strikes me as very much like it's just Milch writing his own sort of thoughts about it 
and having her say the lines, which is <laughs> it does it does feel like someone who's statement. getting high on their own supply a little bit going yeah. around and he's like nobody understands what's going on but me and it drives yeah. me insane yeah yeah he's he, it's <clears throat> to the point where i'm just i'd rather just burn down the entire town <laughs> gamora on him before the color no white man no man of any you moved to civilize or improved place like this had reason to make the effort the color brought commerce here such order as has been attained. Yes, sir. Do you want to help Liberia, Odell? I want to help myself. <laughs> if Liberia is where my chance is, it's all right with me. Gold is your chance. Thank you, sir. Gold is every man's opportunity. Why do I make that argument? Because every defect in a man and in others' way of taking him our agreement that gold has value gives us power to rise above. Fond as you are, my mother, without that gold I showed you, I don't expect we'd be out here talking. <laughs> that is correct. And for your effrontery at our meal a moment ago, I've seen you shot or hanged without a second thought. The value I gave the gold restrained me, you see your utility in connection to it. And because of my goal, those at the other tables deferred to my restraint. Gold confers power. Power comes to any man who has color. Even if he's black. That is our species hope that uniformly agreeing on its value, we organize to seek the color. Before you and I met, Odell, the camp sheriff, released me from a jail cell. That's hard for me to feature. I hate these places, Odell, because the truth that I know, the promise that I bring, the necessities I'm prepared to accept make me outcast. <clears throat> Isn't that foolish? Getting that foolishness. An old man disabused long ago of certain yearnings and hopes as to how he would be held by his fellows. Yet I weep. Hearst just continues to be like incredibly nuanced. You talk there about the ending, which is basically like they start him off in the dinner scene. He he says that he when he's talking about Aunt Lou when she's serving, he mentions to Odell that the problem with your mother is that she hasn't yet learned to be, to not care what others think in mm -hmm. society. Hearst says that because he's having dinner with a black man, which is like causing everyone right. else in the place to look at him kind of out of the side of their eyes. I thought, I thought that was really, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I thought that was a really good scene too. Cause they never straight out. <laughs> I feel like a lesser show would have had Odell, make or Hearst make reference to the fact that everybody's staring at them because he's eating dinner with a black man. Yeah. But yeah. they just let the actors all kind of preparing to shoot him. Yes. <laughs> do the work. Do the work for them, you know? Hey, I guess by not saying it, I think there might be a confusion that everyone in there is a Hearst bodyguard who's keeping an eye on her on Odell. 
which is not the oh, case. Oh yeah, I didn't I didn't read it that way. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one way of seeing it. Um, but no, it's really just it's Hearst. As soon as EB pulled out a gun, I was like, oh, this is a he's, racist thing. He's, he's got he's got to handle. EB's got EB's locked and loaded. It's a. Uh, it's Hearst dancing to the beat of his own drum, which is what he's to do, which adds to his sort of interesting and mystique and everything. But at the end, he also brings it back up just by saying, as you were saying, that he, no one else in this town understands what he's trying to do and it makes him an outcast, even though what he's, he believes he's doing the right thing. He has this sort of mm-hmm. like Thanos moment, basically. Um, but he also cries at the end of it which is just further inside. Like it's along the lines of when Hearst would seem genuinely sad about Turner too. It's that Hearst is an abstraction of the evils of sort of powerful capital coming in and what that could mean to things. But he's also, he's not completely unfeeling and he's not written as though he's like this complete alien of a character who has no sympathy whatsoever for anyone in the camp or any other people. Yeah. And it just it's, it's it's a nice way to show that he's he sort of self-justifies his own decisions to hide his own anger at the way that his life has gone because of his myopic view on what he wants to accomplish and what he wants to get out of life has cost him things in other ways. It did um <laughs> it did remind me slightly of the scene in the Big Lebowski where it uh Lebowski calls the dude in and he starts crying and he's like, do my tears surprise you, sir? I too can cry. And the dude's just like, yeah, man, whatever. <laughs> whatever it takes. No, you don't see. Uh, the rug old... pissers did this, man? What's that? You think the rug pissers did this, man? <laughs> Hearst hasn't lost the rug. You would have put a hole in it, I think, in the first place. <laughs> but yeah, Hearst's, um, I think it's a, it's a further clarification of Hearst, the dinner. Hearst has that thing that McRaney said in the book, the coffee table book about Hearst sees things more clearly than other characters do. He sees right through the con that's being played on him uh, almost immediately. He, It's it's tough. It's basically the Nigerian prince scam. Yeah, and it's it is. It's kind of yeah. tough not to see through it. It's like, what did you what did you expect me to do? Go to Liberia? With, like, how did he expect this to play out? Yeah, to be to be convinced of it by you know you have a little bit of gold and you go over. I mean, it takes you a year and a half to confirm this with the way the travel was working back then. But I, I also think that like Hearst's interaction with Odell and the whole point of that speech about gold being an equalizer is, I find that to be a really like interesting characterization of Hearst there, which is that mm. he he is not he's he's like. He is racist in the way that everyone there is, and maybe he's even more racist when he sort of does this hierarchy of the races and how they, who he wants to interact with them. But he has this he has this overriding principle of he's not he's not so he's not Steve the drunk racist. Like he doesn't right. allow it to block him or blind him as to what he wants to actually accomplish. And he's He's not even racist because it fits in with the culture because he doesn't care what other people think about what he does. It, it's mm-hmm. a weird of his own strain of like uh, his own strain of ideology that powers him. And it's, it's unique, I think. And he's, he's different from a lot of the other characters in that way. Yeah, I felt like he really his obsession with the gold. And I mean, maybe this was this was part of the intention of him throwing around the term the color the color etc cetera, etc cetera. this is the first time where his obsession really felt uh like 
like an obsession, like th there's something wrong with this man. Because I, <clears throat> as he was kept talking about it, and he's, and the way he talks about it, and, and what he's talking about in terms of what he's willing to do to the camp, and the idea that there might be gold in Liberia worth checking out. I just found myself thinking like, what, 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 what is he, what is he getting out of this? Other, it, it feels like it's, I, I, it feels like such an un, like a straight obsession that doesn't really benefit him in any real way or really bring him any pleasure. It's just a straight up obsession that he cannot stop. No, I, I, cause I, I guess he, I feel in that ending scene, he sort of states what he wants. He has the line, he says, gold confers power and power comes to any man who has the color. And mm. I, I think that that's what defines Hearst is that Hearst is not interested in like the wealth or the materialism that is brought from having gold, but Hearst is very interested in, I see the world a certain kind of way and I can make the world that way if I have mm. enough gold, if I have enough power. He, he did. He he really came off like Daniel Plainview here to me, like like later years Daniel Plainview when it, it's kind of like his obsession. It brought him to the point where you look at him and you go, okay, was all of is all of this really worth it? Yep. You know, for yep. you've you've got it. You've got it all. Now what? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think he's entering his. Um, you know, I don't think it's. I don't think the Thanos character in the movie is at least a very interesting character. But like here, he's definitely he's he's entering that period where he's he's explaining the plot of what he wants, right? And he wants the power to do this change, and he wants to change the world, or change the universe, or whatever. But he's also he's he's at the point of whatever movie it is where Thanos is like, I've been doing this forever, but this is like you've annoyed me so much that this is now personal, and I'm going to enjoy yeah. destroying it. <laughs> and that's kind of what Hurst is with the Deadwood Town. He's 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 been frustrated to the point where he's now emotional about it, and he's not particularly thinking as clearly as he was, and he's more hell-bent on destruction than his initial solution uh, or, like, his initial goal was. No longer just business. Now it's personal. It's personal. Yeah. He's got to take the gun out of the suitcase and move on. And that's I think that's, that's pretty much all that Hearst does in this one. Uh, what do you think yeah. of the uh, Odell... What did you think of the Odell aspect of that? Um, I thought it was I thought it was good. If the, his whole thing still feels really random to me, um, but I, I I did I did like his uh, scene with his mom. Um, even though I was trying to, I was really on the fence about whether or not uh, the woman who plays his mother was acting well in that scene or if she was going too over the top because it she's hysterical to the point of it it feels like bad acting but in the back of my head i was like well but i mean she's hysterical so yeah you know who's to say what that looks like it's um, a reaction to death right right odell yeah. odell is facing death with his con here like there, yeah. there, there there's only there's potentially a bad outcome for this and it's i think she's the um, she's the mother who's reacting to death in that situation. Yeah. He has not died yet, but she knows from her experience with Hearst what is to be expected. That's like to kill you as take passage with you to Liberia. His man you meeting in New York. If Mr. Hearst wanted me killed, Mama, he could see it done here. Don't you ever believe you know what to please that man. Assault him to come after you. 
And you look a fool holding that cigar. I played one for smaller stakes. And the gold ain't playing. I ain't trying to steal nothing. I work my way up the hall. And ain't you sent me out there so I can turn out a man? I sent you so the hell that was coming here for niggas wouldn't burn you up. There's plenty of fire in Liberia. I can't undo what I done, Odell. Any more than you can searching out hurt. I ain't searching no hurt out. We all get our potion. We don't need to draw it to us. You hear me, mama? I ain't searching no goddamn hurt out. I done told you to mind who you talking to. All right, mama. No bad language. If you kept me to raise me, Maybe I'd know. <laughs> and I think what was really, really great about that scene is in her hy- hyster- hysteria, um, you know, you you get the knowledge that she has been trying. She's basically been doing her best to, uh, she thinks, protect her son, but her son is there to tell her that, you know, there's, it basically the uh, the pendulum swung too far in the other direction where she yeah. was actually being hurt by the fact that she was pushing him away and you know she said she wanted to i can't remember what the exact line is about they're keeping him away from the f- things burning down and he's like yeah. well there's fire in libya or liberia as well you know yeah i, I thought that stuff was really good because i mean that's the fear of every parent right you you go so hard trying to protect your kid and you ultimately f- realize that your overprotectiveness has now put them in a different kind of danger. Yeah, yeah, they don't because they're never they're going to never understand why you push them away like that, even with what was in her best or his best interest for her to do that. But um, but he's back now and vengeful. And, you know, as far as this plot, I think it, it fits just into what Deadwood is at this point, which is that there's there's not always just there's not always an explanation as to the 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 plot mechanics or like the the pure reason as why someone like Odell would come back and do things. I I draw mm. the inference he's just doing it because he's trying to take revenge on the person who employs his mother is like the nearest proxy to get back at the forces that caused her to send him away in the first place. Yeah. You know, and Hearst represents the 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 great white powerful male who well, yeah, she's protecting uh, him from. Yeah, because he, he tells her that he had planned to do this without her even knowing he did it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I forget why exactly that didn't happen, but he didn't get back. Yeah, because he something. didn't. He thought he thought she was staying at the Comstock, but was surprised that she got called by Hearst to Deadwood at, at that yeah. point. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. This and um, and just move on to the other aspects of it. I guess like I, I, any of the other storylines struck you as interesting. Some of them are more in depth at this point. Some of them are a little bit. Not throwaway, but smaller. The Janie and Joni scene where she mm-hmm. takes a bath is kind of not a throwaway, but it's a very short scene. I think it's the only bit that you see of those two. Yeah. Uh, Joni slept with her sisters? Yeah. Her father uh, prostituted her with her sisters. Oh. Okay. Yeah. I didn't. I, I missed the part about the father, but it just... Uh, did she bring that up in this episode? No, it's been previous. She, she talks about oh, when, okay. why her father sold her to Cy... After a while, like he, the father was sleeping with all of them and making them Ah, be prostitutes, and then he sold her to Psy at some point. Yeah, yeah, I like that scene. I thought that was uh, the the woman who plays Jane is amazing. Again, another person who should have gotten an Emmy or something. Uh, Robin Weigert, I think that's her name. Yeah, Yeah. the the way that she like twitches after she kisses her is really good. (laughs) Yeah, we'll scrub my fucking tits then. (laughs) 
Yeah, the way she, uh, the lady doth protest too much about not not wanting her tits scrubbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's I I think those two are a good pairing because they do both have this uh, broken history of of sexual violence, right? And so it yeah. makes it makes sense for the two of them to kind of find each other and 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 uh, uh, and connect on a on a level that really nobody else in the cast can identify with yeah there's a female to female bond thing too that uh because the men are the ones that have hurt them in this world right. so it makes yeah. sense that they would find security with each other uh outside of that they they have the the big meeting which is kind of the mm. linchpin i guess we should talk about the meeting the one i just to cover a quick one that leads into that the one scene i liked it was very on the nose, but I I enjoyed it because it was no one no one even thought to bring this up uh, elsewhere in the show was when they just cut to the room with the whores and one of them says uh, I guess even if you if you have a pussy even if even if you own a bank you don't yeah. get invited to the meeting yep and yep. it's like it's not it's on the nose but I, I after they said that I was like wow I hadn't even thought of that either. And none of the none of the other characters even float the idea of should we invite Alma to this meeting? Yeah, yep, yeah. I've seen the other outside of Alma, the other character I've seen brought up that should be there is probably Wu should be there as well, but he's he's sure. obviously excluded. But yeah, certainly um, the females are not allowed to attend this meeting. It is especially kind of seen that they they just jut it into to make sure you get the point. But it is as you were saying, I'm, I appreciate the fact that they put it in there because it's not something you really notice or think about. Guess if you got a pussy, even owning a bank don't get you to that table. Right, and I, you know, it's probably something we should notice, but yeah, it yeah. isn't for various reasons. Well, because they had they had the meeting before she had the bank too, right? So this would be, sure, you would think sure. this would be a point where, but even then, she's like has the biggest yeah the uh, money interest in the entire town. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they they invite fucking well, he doesn't get invited, but he forces himself into the meeting. Steve is fucking there, yeah, but uh, but Alma's not there. <laughs> is Steve there in this latest meeting? I believe so. That he has that whole. Does he end up not going? Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think they tell him he can't go. Harry goes with Tom, and Eb is there. I think. I don't think Steve ends up going. Oh, okay, he doesn't end up going. All right. Either way, it, I mean, on on the one hand, you've got Steve. Harry Manning being there is a strange choice to be there. Yes, Harry being there is, is makes more sense. I think the uh, uh, Tom Nuttall's reasoning is more sound than yeah. Steve's is. <laughs> yeah. But uh, the fact that Steve thinks that he deserves to be there and Alma like doesn't even ask yeah. is, I think, uh, pretty sums it up pretty well. Before we forget about him, it's a. Uh, I think it's an episode that focuses on the. Sadness of some unlikable characters. Hurst we talked about, but Steve the drunk has his pathetic like, "Will you still stay and work for me?" moment with yeah. the general, um, yeah, and gets shot down, and then just goes back to being his normal vile self, uh, yelling about things. <laughs> I, I I find his 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 line is very sad. Where he's like, he's like, "Don't try to fucking murder me in my sleep. I will not murder you." <laughs> it's, just, <laughs> it's his his best way of. Uh, you know, sort of offering up an olive branch, I guess, to the general. I I did like when Harry, I think it was Harry, uh, pulls a uh, drops the the Lovecraftian hammer on him when he's like, you know, are you so sure about your own ancestry? Because 
your nose looks kind of wide there. Bro. Oh, yeah. He, like, uh, Steve is like, oh, no. <laughs> the most horrible thing I could think of. One Maybe of the, I'm part black. One of the reviews was saying that the, the show seems like it's building towards they, re, they reveal that they're distant cousins or something yeah. because they've, <laughs> they've had the same, uh, they have the same surname and they have a comparison of facial features, which is that. Um, Interesting. That's the, I forget that character's name, but Ted Mann, it's the Ted Mann character the the writer ted man plays that character oh that guy yeah. okay it wasn't harry yeah that's it's that guy who's only there to just stir shit with people yeah his name he has like a last name it's like ferguson or something like that is his name uh but yeah the meeting is the big thing about this one so the the meeting i think is great uh the meeting is the show talking about like what separates this town and the way that it's developed from the way that hearst is hearst has explained what his point of view is which is that he you know the color is the most important thing you do what you have to do to get it. It gives you power. Power gives you agency over everyone else and no one else can control you. The town is the opposite of that where you're trying to figure out how to deal with the Hearst threat. And it comes down to, you know, just what I think is a really beautiful Deadwood thing, which is completely on track with what the show does and what I just kind of talked about a minute ago, which is that no one is really sure if they've come up with a solution. Right. They've just they know that some they know that the letter makes them feel a certain way, and they feel that it's a response to Hearst. But no one can actually verbalize what they think they've accomplished or why they think this is going to do anything down the line. And I just Deadwood does that all the time. It's just it's not very clear, or it doesn't want to say what it thinks is happening, or it does it might not even have a strong point of view about what it thinks that the right outcome here is going to be, or why these things mean anything. It's just a commentary on the shared moment of the death of Pasco and reading the letter that Bullock had written to the widow reminds everyone about the sort of communal bond that's been formed in the town. And Hearst doesn't understand any of that. And if if they lose this and Hearst actually manages to succeed in burning down the town, the only thing that they have against him at that point is the fact that they have a bond and a love for each other that Hearst can never understand and never share with them. It's just, it's, it's a, it's a, it, you know, another show would have just had the, they hatch the Ocean's Eleven plot in this meeting, you know, and it's like, right. we're going to go off and do that. And it just ends so unsatisfying, but still satisfying in the same way. It just, it perfectly encapsulates things. Yeah. I thought that was really funny. Cause even in the show, <clears throat> they go out of their way to, to have scenes where people are like, so how was the meeting? What'd you guys decide? And whoever is being asked the question is like, well, we read a really nice letter <laughs> and uh, yeah. It went well. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? I don't know. I'm really not sure. <laughs> and the Swearingen scene with um, Langriche at the end is funny too. He's like, I don't even know what the fuck. I read that. <laughs> we read that letter. But I, I like Swearingen too. After they read the letter and um, Swearingen has the line, he's like, that's a really fucking nice letter, boy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he had some really good, um, I don't know if, if uh, deadpan is the right word, but when the guy comes in with all the the um, the swatches and then Johnny knocks yes. on the door and he just goes, Jesus Christ, come in or something. <laughs> yeah. For the love of God, come in. Come in. Yeah. Whoever's out there, for the love of God, come in. Yeah, yeah the, uh, the swatches uh, is a funny scene. Um, that actor is a, a dead... Uh, 
old NYPD blue favorite of Milch. So I guess that's why he's involved in this. Oh, is one. he? He looked he looked familiar, but I couldn't place him. Yeah. So um but yeah, the the town, you know, assembling. I think that they, they have things like Sai is back and talking here. There's a, a kind of renewed idea that Sai is turning against Hurst in some ways implied in this episode. Um Yeah, he he is the one who voices that even he is concerned because uh he he brought he brought Hurst some oh, primo knowledge yeah, about juicy, Alma and he did info. not care. He yeah. he was only concerned with Bullock. Yep. Yeah, so there's the about whether or not they need to hand over Bullock to it. I give him a foolproof fucking approach to wind up at that woman's claim. I could have been shit drawing flies. Hurst is that fucking focused on Bullock pulling his ear. Yeah. All collected, but Doc. Where the fuck is he? Ain't up to it, he says. Uh, Cinnamon's out for the peaches. Huh? Now, what am I fucking doing? Giving Hurst Bullock's the only move that don't end with a camp in flames. And that one only gets us up to 50-50. Yeah, it represents, you know, literally the, the thing that's hanging over everything is it, Hurst, as he says, wants to go all Gamora on the town and destroy it. He does this thing where he's ordered 25 bricks, <laughs> which uh, Blazanov, uh betrays his like his oath to secrecy and tells the town about, which means that Hearst is hiring guns to come into the town. Um, but yeah, it's just the, the death of the town is on everyone's mind. And I think that the, the episode itself is just showing how different people react to that information and whether they do things and how, how people go yeah. about it. We had a, um, we had a death of a close, a family that I grew up with, their youngest child died. Uh, oh, I'm sorry to hear ago. that. Thanks. And we had we had the wake. And I think that it was just on my mind because I think that the Deadwood episode captures how shockingly different the reaction of death is to people, right? Like so in the in the sort of like the greeting line at the wake, when you go up and give your condolences to the family, like the, yeah. the mother was obviously understandably much like the aunt Lou character in this. And, but mm-hmm. as you're moving down the line, <clears throat> some of the siblings of the deceased, like one made a joke to me there. And it's like, yeah. you're just in a weird, you're in a weird spot where there's like all different kinds of things going on and all different kinds of ways of people dealing with what is obviously a, a, like a terrible and, tragic situation for them but you know the the person who gives the like the the pastor or whatever the priest or whatever who gives the speech is one thing there's the conversations afterwards which are another thing there's the like no one can really understand anything that's if you're not in directly affected by it to the way that the family is it's very difficult to understand where you're going or like what you're supposed to do and i feel that this deadwood episode just kind of captures that that energy that's at the wake like that, which is that some are depressed, some are looking for something else, some are concerned about like uh, thinking about other people and how it's going to, you know, like sort of transposing their thoughts of from one person onto another. And I think that that's why this episode is kind of regarded so highly is it, it, it handles a lot of different character interactions with very different opinions about um, what they all think about what you could say is just the, the symbol of life and death, but it's neat. I, I think it has a lot of great scenes in it. And I think that the show settles in a place that's kind of interesting. And, um, 
anti Hurst, really, uh, mm. which is, you know, where they needed to go, but it's fun to see them get there. I'm always caught off guard by the receiving line at a wake. Yep. <clears throat> because I feel like there's always at least one person who's just like really upbeat that always yeah. catches me off guard. Yes, and I know yeah. and I and I know that they're doing that because it's like I, I think there's a <clears throat> uh they are sad. They know that you are sad, and so they need feel the need to lighten the mood. Yep. For everybody's sake. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's never not weird. No, <laughs> it's yeah, always, it's, it's always strange. Well, and you don't, you know, you you don't know if you should laugh at the joke in the line, right? right? Like yeah. it's like it's uh, it's a uh, yeah. Everyone's very unsteady and unsure of where it goes. And I, I think it, you know, it's the. The opposite would be like the the ending of uh, this one with Al's uh, Al talking to Cochran about it, right? There's like the similar. The, there's the like there's the sort of anger at the situation that Swearingen represents mm-hmm. here, which is that Cochran uh, Cochran Cochran isn't exactly giving up, but Al is more annoyed that he's sort of sick in the, in the first place, and like he's he's got to fight through this because we need him. He has the great line. He's like, I'm not going to learn any other fucking quirks of any other doctors who come into yes. the town. Um, you know, it's just there's there's really good good reactions and good uh, good uh, good scenes between all the characters dealing with that stuff. Yeah, um, I think this was a good one for everybody. This is a very good ensemble episode because you've even got guys who don't really have many lines just showing up like uh, EB at the meeting is is really good EB stuff even though he's just <laughs> yeah. not really doing anything you know he's just kind of there should I speak um, as mayor even though no one cares and it's not important he just sits yeah. down and everyone ignores him <laughs> yeah I, Richardson's good in this one yeah yeah. Uh, yeah I think everybody's just really you know on the same page yeah. um, for the for the benefit of the show yeah yeah, the um what do you think what do you do you find the the letter like where where do you end up on the uh, the, the letter serving the the function that it does in this episode whether or not it was whether or not it's like effective or did, did you find that that moment lands with the show do you find that that like connects with what the central I don't know, conflict, but the, the central idea of what these guys are thinking is going to happen when they publish this letter and what the letter means to them if it landed for you. I uh, I have no idea what they're thinking, honestly. Yep. I, I don't know what their plan is. I, I'm not totally sure what they think is going to happen when they publish the letter. Uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly left that scene kind of mystified as to what, what they had all, the unspoken conclusion they had all come to. Yeah. Yeah, uh, because I, I guess it ends with the I can't remember the specific lines. The Langrishan Swearingen sort of dissect it at the end of the episode about uh, what they think it did, and they're both unsure at that point. And I think it ends very smartly with no one's very clear about whether or not this is going to um, amount to anything. Uh, but th- at the same time, the other letter carrier is uh, Blaznov who has more to do in this episode than he's had in quite a while because he reads the telegram that was implied in the mm-hmm. last episode. But I didn't think we... Um, in the last episode, they had that scene with Merrick and Blaznov where Blaznov talks about how back in Russia, um, his family was killed by, I don't know what purge or whatever that would have been oh, in yeah. Russia at that time. But 
Too, um, it's too early for Cossacks, right? So that's a later. I thing. don't. I, all I know is the Russian Revolution would have been early nineteen hundreds, right? So I don't know right, what yeah. eighteen seventy six was going on in Russia. Obviously, uh, revolutions don't come out of nowhere. So there's probably the forces bubbling up, but I, I don't. They're know. always they were always killing people in Russia. Yeah, the Russians are uh, the strange strange group of people. But, but Blazanov has. He has that. We, I don't think we talked about it a lot. I put it as the ending clip of the last podcast, but where he's talking about his parents being killed and um, the sadness. And Merrick has that great line about like the, the the swells of history just kind of sweep you up wherever you are. Mm. Um, and here it's Blazanov gets to make his choice about which swells of history he gets caught up in, and he sort of betrays his oath and he goes back on it and, and reads about the bricks and explains that to Swearingen. Um. Yeah, I just thought it was a nice moment. He's he's been a, he's a fun sort of side character that doesn't get a lot of play, but I enjoy his performance and I enjoy his, his his point in this one. Yeah, it was nice to have him actually factor into stuff instead of being just sort of like a pleasant side character. Yeah, Aaron Aaron Boy because he hasn't he hasn't had much to do up to this point. I also liked his um the 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 ending scene where he reveals it to Al. I think Al says something like, "Would you like to have some puss?" And he's like, "Not now." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> eventually, yes. Eventually, yes. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh, anything else about this one? I'm just trying to look through the scenes that happened here. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you have, do you have any scenes that popped your, into your mind, or anything that you wanted to uh, to bring up here? Not particularly. I think we we covered everything. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's a the the. I like the focus on, the death idea. I think that I honestly like one of the strengths I think of the third season is that I think that um, the Hearst versus community thing, is, a really interesting idea. And I, I sort of find myself stuck in the middle where the, I think one of the reasons that I like Hearst is that, and I, and I wonder how much Milch enjoys it too, is that there's a, the battle between them is something that's kind of going on politically, right? It's like, it's the idea of the individual, which is what Hearst represents and like sort of your own selfish gains and your own selfish interests against what the town needs and what everyone else needs around you. Mm-hmm. And it's... um. Like, obviously, both have their place. And I think that, you know, like the the modern, um, what do they call it? Like the Manosphere stuff with like Andrew Tate's people oh, and yeah. things like that. There's there's a, there's a this relentless push on like the individual is everything. Um, and that like you need to stand alone and you need to do your own thing. And I find myself stuck in the middle because it's like, I do believe in the Hearst thing of like you do have to have like your individual drives and like your own drives are what's going to propel you into something that resembles success or you're you're only really responsible for yourself because no one else really gives a shit about you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also like without the town, you end up in places where you don't have a family structure, you don't have sort of friendships, you don't have anything else motivating you or keeping you grounded in that way. Like, do you, I don't know if you agree with that or, or if you think that the does the show vilify Hearst at the expense of what Hearst might represent as a good thing or vice versa? I don't know if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I, 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 I think that as, as individualistic as one might want to be, it, it does, people don't exist in vacuums. 
you yeah. know, so the application of that only makes sense to a certain point where it's like, you know, my friend Dan always points out people who are really into uh, uh, conspiracy theories and the government is coming for you and stuff like that. They still own cell phones, you know, yep. they still buy things from Amazon. There's there's a it's it's very difficult and probably self-destructive to try and live that way completely because that's just not how the world functions. Yeah. And um I I don't I don't think that hmm I It's interesting first argument because, is similar to Gordon Gecko's greed is good. Line, sure. Right. Yeah. Which is kind yes. of, which is seen as like a, I haven't seen that movie in a long time, but like it's obviously a slimy character saying something, but at the same time, he has like this truth to him. You know, there's the, right. Yeah. I, I see Hearst is driven that way in his individualness. It's like the, well, I, I think, I think what's interesting though is like if you, I don't know if, I don't know if it's the individuality that's that's being vilified because I would say everybody else at that table in the meeting is as much of an individual as Hearst is. It's just that Hearst never asked for help. You know what I mean? Like everybody right. else at that table realizes that they need to be part of a larger group in order to get ultimately what's best for them and best for the town, whereas Hearst doesn't even consider that as an option. Right. And I think that's maybe where the where the the uh, um, vilification comes in, where it's like you can be as individualistic as you want, but if you are just straight up unwilling to work with other people, then it's it's just it's not gonna it's not for the for anybody's benefit, even your own. Yeah, yeah. Hurst, I mean, Hurst. Not to be confused, but Hurst is obviously a terrible person who's cruel. Um, his cruelty hides beneath that sort of like his pleasantness that he can sure. be in places. Mm -hmm. And I think that he's he's obviously selfish and self-aggrandizing and only interested in what his own uh, sort of motivations can bring about. I, I think it's a good point that the rest of the town is largely individual. I, I guess the distinction is that Hearst has no... The emptiness of Hearst's connections to anybody is what causes him the, the greatest amount of sadness down the line. Yeah. And well, you know, I oh, sorry, finish. No, the, the, and the town is, which I think is not a point that's wrong. Like the 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 reason that if you become like a sort of like solitary incel character who just lives on like the internet and stuff like that, you're you're missing what the town brings to you, which is the sense of like other people, um, both like correcting you and serving as a like a reality check for you. Yeah, that's it's you become really twisted in your perception of how things work to a point where it's it's just not realistic and does you no good yeah right and but I, you know i, I sorry go no ahead. I'm, I'm done go ahead i was just gonna say like al is as as bad a person as hearst is yeah you know a smaller Tolliver, scale i guess yeah. smaller yeah. scale Tolliver is as bad a person as hearst yep. is yeah it's just it, i think what's interesting is the show kind of keeps positioning these characters who are very similar to al and showing you why al consistently wins it's because al is willing to adapt where these other guys in ways that these other guys aren't yeah and i think that's okay. that's the key 
to the angle that they're taking on Hurst is where it's like he and Al aren't really that different. It's just that Al has the sense of mind to know when he needs to uh, work with other people um, on the up and up or otherwise. Yeah. And Hurst is and, and, and Al, Al knows how, when to compromise and when to um, see things uh, further out, which Hurst also does. But he his he has tunnel vision that he sees further out, whereas Al has a bit more of a, of a wider scope of, yeah. of what, what he's looking at. Yeah, I think that um, a, a smaller uh, detail about it. I, Al sees people as equals, I suppose, and Hearst never sees anyone as equals. Like even in yes. Hearst's connections, yeah. everyone that he has a connection with is he views as subservient to him. And Al, at this point in the series, I think is less of like the town mob boss and more just like the town elder, really, who... I would say has like deep friendships with some of the people they've done like scenes where he talks to Tom Nuttall are always nice little throwaways because apparently they've been like the original people in the town that the first two that arrived yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And he just, he has like nice connections like that where the only person that we've seen get close to Hearst is he has aunt Lou who he views as subhuman and he yeah. had Turner who worked for him. And those are the only two relationships he's had. Yeah. I, I think Hearst sees people as pathetic Whereas right. Al sees people as Al understands, even though Al's viewpoint of people is is just as cynical as anything else. I think his viewpoint is we are all equal in that we are all pieces of shit and nobody is better than a piece of shit. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Uh, and that so that brings this weird level of sympathy from him. Whereas Hearst does have this. Uh, belief that he's better than people and so he sees other people as only pathetic which seems like it's uh, uh, like sympathy but it's just he thinks people are pathetic yeah it's 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 weird because you know al to get to the point where he ran deadwood had to be a mini hearst you know there he right. was he was murdering and he was you know taking money and uh, scamming people and and doing all that uh but he got to a certain point where you know, if he had got big enough, he might have just become the next Hearst. But he stopped at this point where he became something larger than himself. It's it's actually a pretty interesting bookend for the series that the show starts with Al uh, lying, cheating, and killing in service of getting his hands on a gold claim, and then he the series ends with someone on a larger scale doing the same thing. Whereas yeah. Al has now evolved past that. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit of a, a cyclical thing like The Wire likes to do. Yeah. That's it's like it. Star Wars. That's it. It's poetry. It rhymes. <laughs> it's unauthorized cinnamon. Thanks, everybody, for listening. That's a great... We didn't even talk about that title. That's a, I, I didn't realize that was the title of the episode, but yep. as, soon as, as soon as Dan says, there'll be no fucking unauthorized <laughs> cinnamon, I was like, that's a... <laughs> That's fantastic. And then the, the follow-up when he when Johnny says, they put cinnamon out for the peaches, and I was like, who the fuck did that? <laughs> or, or why? Or whatever. And I like Johnny. Johnny has a funny line. He's walking away. He's like, I didn't have any fucking part of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah, The I mean, the we didn't even really talk about it, but like the... I, I think it's a perfect little encapsulation again of what Deadwood does, which is that the unauthorized cinnamon is 
a joke, right? Because it's kind of a funny thing to say, and it's a funny yeah. thing to be to have them bicker about during the meeting. But it takes on this larger. It takes on this larger meaning, which is kind of like the the dead would take on life. Is like it starts off it can be kind of funny, but it turns into something potentially tragic. Almost like Harry almost dies from his allergic right. reaction to the cinnamon. Yeah. And the cinnamon is the metaphor uh, for death in the episode, which is just it's just kind of like this funny mashup of the way that life is, which is it's a bunch of jokes and bullshit and everything like that. But then like tragedy is just looming around the corner for some innocuous yeah. reason. And I, I think it's um it's just it's the show in a nutshell. I think it captures all those angles. Yeah, that's it. Have you ever have you ever tried it? Have you ever put cinnamon on peaches? Uh, not since I was little. I don't. Really... I think I have a can. I might try it tonight. You have a can of peaches? Yeah, Dude, I think should, so. We should, we should just have. We should have a canned peaches party. Uh, should with I? The should I live? Should I live stream the, <laughs> the opening of the the peaches? And they were peaches I bought for uh, when we went during lockdown. So they're oh, like four wow. years These old. Are, yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely live stream it then because if if the cinnamon doesn't kill you, the peaches might at the end of the day. <laughs> now I haven't had cinnamon on. I'm, I'm sure it's good right and the peach is a weird fruit to me you know like i there's nothing better than a real ripe peach but mm. waiting for the peach to go ripe it feels like your life is wasting away is this rock hard thing and if is you sitting there. if you miss that like five hour period <laughs> it just becomes water and it just, just like yeah, sloshes just, uh, all over the I, place I, my my mother would would buy peaches and put them in a in a brown paper bag yep and then you know you put them on the thing you lift it and so I started doing that, but I just kept like forgetting that I had them. Yeah. And yeah. so I had just like a paper bag full of peaches that just all got gross. It just melted into a peach, a puddle of peach. Yeah. If you go too early, it tastes like shit. If it go too late, it tastes like shit. Yeah. You gotta find, you gotta find the bullseye there. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. So it, like and subscribe to see how <laughs> how, how you how four year old canned peaches turned out. <laughs> They're not like you know they don't even have the uh, the uh, malleability of a plum like a you can eat a an unripe plum and do okay with it you know like you can yeah. you can get through it you might not enjoy it but it's possible to eat it <laughs> yeah you can, if you have to to make a point you can but <laughs> well the price of produce going through the fucking roof these days but no a, a peach that's unripe is inedible you can't yes. do anything with it it's just it's yeah like, yeah throw it through a window pretty easily i think yeah yeah Hit him in the face with the rock. Unauthorized cinnamon. Thanks everybody for listening to the show today. This is the Something Pretty podcast. We just covered. I think we're over the halfway mark of the third season, so we only have a couple episodes left, Clay of Deadwood, before we are done with the series as a whole. Thanks everybody for listening. You can rate the show on Apple Podcasts, and more importantly, if you enjoy the content, Patreon.com/slash The Penske File is the best place to support us. A couple dollars a month gets you extra stuff, extra podcasts. We'll be doing. Uh, well, we have like 200 podcasts on the thing at this point. So if you subscribe to patreon.com slash the Penske file, you can get all that stuff and more, and it'll feel like you're supporting the show. Even if the show's over at this point, if we're no longer releasing episodes on this podcast feed, the Patreon will still exist. Gamora That's might've the- been called down on the, the podcast <laughs> feed, but not the Patreon. That's the dream, right? Isn't that, isn't that the dream of like every OnlyFans creator where it's like you you keep putting things out for maybe like two years and then you just stop and see how long it takes for people to remember they still pay for it. That's right. That, that's why. Isn't it weird that it, you would have thought that the lobby for um, why do credit cards expire? 
Do you ever wondered about that? Like, wouldn't you think that they would yeah. lobby to keep credit cards active as long as possible so that people have recurring charges on them? Because there was some I, something that like 90% of people cancel, only recognize that they have continuing subscriptions when the credit card expires and they no longer get the service or whatever. You know, like yeah. they get the, the notification. Yeah, I, I have to imagine it's a it's a um, security thing. Don't you get the same number or am I wrong? Yeah. No, you get the same number and and it just changes the date and it might change the little code number on the thing back. in the back. I yeah. can't remember. Yeah, no, I, I don't think it does. I don't know. Anyway. That's weird. Just makes you reactivate <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. I I once recently, um, over the past like two years, had been getting notices from the the web the service that hosts my website. Yeah. Saying that if if I don't change my if I don't update my payment information in the next 30 days, they're going to shut down my shit. And I was like, great, I'm looking for an excuse to not do the, have this website anymore. Yep. And so I just let it lapse. And then every month for legitimately two years, I would get an email saying, if you don't update your information in the next 30 days, mm-hmm. you're going to, you're going to lose your thing. And after like six months of this, I'm like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> Like are they are they charging me for this still? What like right. how is this if it's out of date and they're threatening me if I don't update it, I'm not updating it. So cancel the fucking website. Yeah. I don't know. It was very confusing. <laughs> they want you back. They're just playing hard to get. Yeah. Do you have anything you want to say before we go? I think I've said no. I uh What do I have to say? Um Rotten Heart Pick Show on Patreon, doing video nasties. We just did Dario Argento's Inferno. We're going to be doing uh, one of the grandpappies of the uh, video nasties, which is Wes Craven's uh, Last House on the Left, which is a real mm-hmm. hub for um, what became 80s horror because that involved <clears throat> Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham, who would go on, go on to do Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the 13th, respectively. Yep. Uh, both of them started off in really bottom of the barrel grindhouse stuff. I think they might even have shot porn for like for a brief while. And then they did, uh, work together to make last house on the left, which is still regarded as one of the more extreme horror movies to come out. Well, I don't know if, if if, we'll see how extreme it still is, but it it, it can still be kind of shocking in moments, Mm -hmm. even 40, 50 years later. It's a, yeah, you guys have done ten of them at this point. Well, you'll have yep. ten of them. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's all We've on Patreon. Two, yep, all on Patreon. We've got two left after Last House. It's uh, Lucio Fulci Zombie and I can't remember what the last one is. Well, tune in. It's next terrifying. Tune in next month to see everybody. Thanks very much for listening. I guess we're done at this point. This is Unauthorized Cinnamon. This is the Something Pretty Podcast. We're done. Next week, we are going to get into Leviathan Smiles. The Earps come to town, Clay, which I'm sure Ooh. very, very exciting for you. And you I can hope, check is out it our, is it, I hope they got Kurt Russell to play. No, Ryder. unfortunately. I know, I know that they didn't. No, unfortunately. If you guys want uh, our coverage of Tombstone, that's up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash So If you want to psych yourselves up for some Earps in the next episode of Deadwood, go there and you can hear us talk about Kurt Russell uh, slapping the shit out of people and hitting them with their horse reins. You skin that smoke wagon and see what happens. Throw down, boy. That's it. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back with Leviathan Smiles in the next episode. See you then.
John Langrishall. Come on, Jack. Early finish below. We'd a meeting. I ought to have asked you to. What topic commended my presence? Reprobates? The elderly? Fucking Hurst. That took an axe to my left middle digit. Sends for 25 more thugs to take the tool to the whole fucking camp. Why am I fucking optimistic? Did your meeting find a strategy in counterpoise? We heard the fucking reading of a letter. Ah? Uh -huh. Read by Bullock to a miner's family after Hearst had had him murdered. Exhorting they charge Hearst with the crime. Never once mentioning Hearst. Expressing sympathy to the family, respect for the way the man lived. We decided Merrick would publish in the paper. Strategies some may call ingenuous, others merely off the point. I sit mystified I was moved to endorse it. Mystified, Al? Mm. At proclaiming a law beyond law to a man who is beyond law himself? It's publication invoking a decency whose scrutiny applies to him as to all his fellows. I call that strategy cunningly sophisticated, befitting and becoming the man who sits before me.